Well, welcome and I'm glad you're here. And come on back and come on back. So fun, right? To see people you haven't seen for a while. Well, come on back. And uh, open up your Bibles, would you? Uh, open them to Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke chapter 24. If you're a regular here, we've been going through the book of Luke, and my goal was to get us to Luke chapter 24 for today, but we didn't quite make it. So we're actually in 17, 18, right in that range, and we're going to skip ahead in the story, like the old Notre Dame football highlights, move ahead in the story. But... If you're still coming here next week, we're going to go back to 17, 18, and when we get to 23, we'll do 23 and add 24 in real quick, okay? Uh, So that's where we're headed. Who here has brothers and sisters? Okay, you have brothers and sisters? Well, you know, it's like the amazing love-hate relationship, isn't it? So fun, isn't it? You love them so much. They love you. It's great to be with them and to be around them. And, you know, you have inside jokes with your siblings. <laughs> you have with nobody else. You know these things, right? But come on, folks, let's get real. Sometimes you're annoyed, right? You get annoyed and you fight and you wrestle and you do some things and you say some things and. The gospel can be lived out there in incredible ways uh, because you're all together all the time, right? And uh, that can rub the wrong way sometimes. Can you imagine being a brother or a sister of Jesus? The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4, he was our, our great high priest, but he's without a sin. And mom and dad, Jesus' mom and dad, they knew something was up with this one. You remember, right, when Mary's pregnant, the angel comes and talks to dad, Joseph, and says, here, I'm going to tell you, this one's from God, and oh, by the way, heaven sends a name for it, a name for him. Not just any name, uh, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. God saves. And a little later on in that same chapter, Matthew 1, we're told that Jesus is the one that Isaiah was speaking of when the word Emmanuel was used in the book of Isaiah, which means God with us. In other words, the angel was telling mom and dad, you're having the Messiah. And so that was around all that time at the family home, but come on. He's got brothers and sisters. Really? Does he really have brothers and sisters? You may have come from a tradition that doesn't teach that, and yet in Matthew 13, 53 and 54, not only does it tell us he had brothers, he tells us the names, of, or the, the writer tells us the names of the brothers, and then says some sisters too, and here are the names. 
James, Joses, Simon, and Judas. Jesus had brothers, real brothers. And then the time that Jesus was ministering, you know, it must have been sort of irritating. <laughs> or the time that Jesus was growing up, it's sort of been kind of irritating because, you know, you're sinning, I'm sinning, but that one, he never sins. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. And yet, as Jesus got older and he began his public ministry, we read in the Gospels some very inter interesting things about the family. In John chapter 7, verse 5, before Jesus is crucified, it says, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. His family didn't believe in him. In Mark 3, chapter two, or verse 21, it says, but when his own people, and that's a phrase speaking of his family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. It actually says that in the Bible. Mom and dad get the cue from the angels 30 years prior to the time that we're reading about it here in the, the, the scriptures that I just quoted. And yet, listen, these ones who saw Jesus not sinning and, you know, adhering to the law and being a good little boy and then a good young man, they didn't believe in him as the Savior, as Messiah. <laughs> Even at his death, if you ever wondered this, you know this, Jesus on the cross committed the care of his mom Mary, not to his brothers, his family, but to a disciple and close friend John. You can read about that in John 19. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yet we read in Acts 1.14, it's a very telling scripture in Acts 114, we, we learned that James and his brothers, James and his brothers become believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, ones who would serve him. It says it right there in Acts 114. I'm going to read starting at 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer, but don't stop reading and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, look at this, and his brothers. They became followers of Christ. In fact, there's several James in the New Testament, but his brother James, who wrote the book of James, did you know this? He became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. When they had certain controversies or decisions they had to make about the Christian faith, for instance, circumcision was one. They would take the debate or the controversy and they would take it to make sure James knew of it and then he would help 
to set up the uh, process by which these things would be decided, which suggests to us that he is the leader of the early church. There's a couple other references in James, or excuse me, Acts as well. James, who's named as a brother, who doesn't believe in Jesus as, as Jesus lives here on earth and lives with him, becomes the leader of the early church. Church tradition said his nickname was Old Camel Knees. He was bow-legged. Why do you think that's his tradition? Because he was such a man of prayer. He was always on his knees. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. Hey, what about the apostles themselves, the 12 apostles? Not just his family. You remember this. After all night prayer, Jesus picked these 12 uh, uh, disciples or apostles from among, among his followers. And for three years, folks, think about it. You ever done ministry with somebody you're pouring into and they don't get it? You know, maybe one week you take them to coffee and you're explaining things to them and you're pouring into them. And, you know, next week you come for coffee, maybe the same weeks, maybe the same day of the week, whatever. You're meeting for coffee again. And it's like you're starting over again. You've been sharing with them the things of the Lord and how to walk with the Lord. And yet they keep regressing. Listen, in our humanness, by about week two or three, we're like, man, what's up with this one? Jesus poured into these guys and gals for three years, but the 12 apostles, guys, for three years, folks, he let them come along. He sacrificed for them. He did things with them. He always allowed them to be around his life. And yet... After Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the garden in Mark 14, 49, some of the most sad words of the Bible, they all forsook him and fled. Nobody showed up at the cross save one, John, the writer of the book or the gospel of John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Only John of the twelve. Yet just like James and his brothers, back in Acts 12, or Acts 1, verse 12, 13 and 14, we find that something happens to them between the time of Jesus' earthly life and the time that we find them in the upper room in Acts, that they become people who would give their entire lives to Jesus. And what I suggest to you it is... And we'll see it today in our readings. It was one thing, maybe two, but, but one thing primarily. It was the resurrection of Jesus. Where were they at the cross? They were scared. I'm not pointing at fingers at them. I too may have been scared. I may not have showed up, but something changed in their life between the time that we're talking when he's doing his ministry and the time that we see him in the first chapter of Acts, and that's only a period of, you know, just several days here, folks. Something changed, and it was the resurrection of Christ. Now, when you turn to Luke chapter 24... Remember this, 
This isn't the whole story of the day on which Jesus was, or Jesus' tomb was found empty. You know that, right? And that should give you great encouragement that this story is true. Why am I saying that? Because when witnesses uh, witness a traumatic, exciting event, when they're testifying about it at a later date, Hardly any of them get the exact same events exactly as it happened. And in fact, if everything does match up, if you're in a court of law, you're going, hmm, these people have been coached. But now that we see the basic story true with different events in each gospel, that should be an encouragement to us that these accounts were not contrived. So listen to this. As we think on those things, the brothers and the apostles, their lives are changed. What is it? Here it is, the word of the Lord, chapter 24, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a time out and go back two verses in chapter 23. 55 And the woman who had come women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the sabbath according to the commandment now on the first day of the week very early in the morning very early in the morning on the first day of the week in the early morning this is what they did Certain, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. We love to say that today, don't we? And all days, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Now listen to what they say here. Very fascinating. And they remembered his words. Then they turned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. That's really important. File that away. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they didn't believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now let's just talk about this for a minute. See, one very fascinating thing in verse 55 and 56, and even in the two verses before it, as these ladies followed Joseph, who's taken the body of Christ with the permission of Pontius Pilate, they watched where he put him in the tomb. Now, you, you, you who've heard the story in the West are going, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. See, but if you've practiced criminal law in your life, or if you watch Law and Order, 
You need to know something very important. You need to know what's called chain of evidence. You see, if there's evidence at the scene of something, blood, DNA, which contains DNA, a knife, I don't know, uh, a beer can or something like that, that's all evidence for the court case. And when the police come and the ambulance come and the coroners come and the detectives come, guess what they do? They rope it off and they take the evidence and they take pictures and the people who are taking the pictures, listen to this, are the only ones who can testify about that picture in court. You get why? Because after the, uh, the picture or the piece of evidence that's put in a bag or the, the blood or whatever, after it gets, goes away from the scene, it goes to a crime lab. This was the whole thing in the OJ trial. They tried to pin it on people messing with the evidence at the lab and stuff like that. And then it has to arrive in court and be testified to that it had some sort of chain of command and that what is actually in the courtroom is what was found on the street. Everybody tracking with me? The Holy Spirit of God, by the person of Luke, who, by the way, tells us in the first chapter of this that he's, he doesn't say it in a bragging way, but he says there's no other historical examination of the facts than this gospel. It's a classic He's giving you chain of evidence right here. Because have you ever thought about it? See, there are people who say, oh, the lady's got the wrong tomb. They looked in and there was nobody there and they're so happy and a whole religion started because of it. But they looked in the wrong tomb. Well, no, they didn't look in the wrong tomb. The Bible tells us that they followed J Joseph to the correct tomb. That's important. And so they observed the tomb and how the body was laid. So what was their expectation when they were going back in chapter 24? They're going back to find a body because they said Joseph, like a typical guy, didn't do it right. He didn't put the lid back on. He didn't put the toilet seat down. He didn't uh, uh, put more toilet paper in the roll. He didn't do any of that. They knew this. They, they didn't do it the right way. They didn't do it sufficiently enough. So they prepared with spices, and they knew where the tomb was. And what they're worried about, listen to this, they know they're worried about, is how are we going to get that stone rolled away? We'll never be able to do it because this stone is a round-looking disc that weighs a lot, and it goes on this track. You can see them still in Israel. They cut this track in the ground, and the stone is rolled down into the bottom of the track, so to lift it back up there is really heavy. And they're wondering, how in the world are we going to get that stone rolled away so we can do what Joseph and his buddies couldn't do, prepare the body appropriately? You get it? That's their expectation, the first day of the week. Very in the morning, they and certain other women. Now circle that. Anybody have doubts that of the historicity or historicity of the, of the uh, gospel accounts? I, I, listen, folks, here today, everywhere that the gospel goes, women are elevated. Don't believe the lie that the media tells you and other people. Women are elevated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But back then, in these courts, they didn't accept the testimony of ladies. So for you to be a writer, 
to say that the first people who found that the tomb was empty, you would never, if you were trying to make up the story, say it was through a woman. You'd never do it. Sorry. You just wouldn't. Which tells you that the things that they are writing are true. They would never lie this way. Never. So certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Uh, But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And we know from Matthew 28, 2 through 4, guess what rolled the stone away? An earthquake and an angel. Somehow, the stone was rolled away through this earthquake and an angel. You could read about it over there. But why was the stone rolled away? You know, growing up my whole life, I just thought, well, so Jesus could get out. Boy, is that backwards thinking. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. He could do that easy. The stone is rolled away so people could look in and see that it was empty. Because if the resurrection is true, then everything he said during his lifetime, and we'll examine it here in a minute, is true too. They wanted all of us to know and to see. He wanted all of us to know and to see. Then they went in and didn't find the body of the Lord. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that two men stood by them in shining garments. In Mark and Matthew, it says one angel. Here it says two angels. Don't be upset about that. You ever been a witness to a traumatic accident? You don't remember all the details and record them perfectly. So beautiful that we have all four that come together in perfect harmony. See them all, talk to all the witnesses, examine. So here they are, they're perplexed. These two angels come, and as they are afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, the ladies do, why do you seek the living among the dead, the angels say, and what an amazing phrase. Think about it. In other words, he's, he's alive, he's not dead, he wouldn't be here in a tomb, he's alive. We have a whole nother sermon to do about why Christians and non-Christians live among the dead, but we'll save that for another day. Here they are, and these angels say these wise things. He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Now, I want you to think real hard right here. The angels here are pointing these ladies to the words of Jesus. What do you mean? Well, in my Bible, it's in red, but you don't even have to have red. You can just go back to Luke 9, 22 and read it for yourself. When Jesus said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. He was up in Galilee, these angels are saying, and he told you. And if you even go back into Luke chapter 9, it just keeps going. He tells you that in verse 22, but then he tells you in verse 44, everyone's marveling at all the things which Jesus said. And he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Can you believe Jesus said that? Let this just go into your very being. Let this one. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of of men. Well, how about go to chapter 11 of the book of Luke? 
Look in verse 24. You think Jesus wasn't telling them and telling them and telling them? Excuse me. Uh, Look in verse 30. I'm sorry. And uh, even in 29, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. See, Jesus was talking about the resurrection. That's the sign that he's giving to us. You know, when I was a kid, I remember, Lord, if you're real, just knock something off my, 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 my shelf up there. You ever, anybody else do something like that? I did that. I would read the Bible. No one would make me read the Bible. I would read the Bible and just wondering and trying to grow. And I was just a little kid. And Lord, just knock something off there. Little did I know it was right here. No, Jesus is saying to us, look back to the cross. That's the sign. And he does it here in Luke 24 by the word of God. He wants the ladies to know they're going to see him in the flesh, but he wants them to know the word of God too. I think that's incredibly important, folks. You could even go on to 1831 through 33. He sort of says the same thing. He reminds them again of his death. And listen to this. (laughs) Can you imagine You go to the tomb. You're just anxious. How are we going to get that stone rolled away? And I wonder if the ladies, you know, if we all mix the spices enough. And I hope, you know, we can get to the body. And and then we get there, and and, and it's rolled away. And you're like, what's happening? They're perplexed. And then the angel points them, listen, to the word of God. And now hope, bing, starts to strike its chord in their ears. And they remembered his words. Wow, wait a second. He did tell us about this. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. They went back. They ran back. And they told them, there's no body. The tomb is empty. And there were these angels, and they appeared to us, and they reminded us of the word of God, what Jesus told us. He had been telling us all these times. And who were these people? Isn't it fascinating that he tells you who the people are, the ladies? It's Mary Magdalene. Was Mary Magdalene a prostitute? It doesn't ever say that. It just says she was a great sinner and she was saved from several demons by Jesus. He struck or or cast them out from her. She was one who was forgiven much. So she was there and she lingered at the cross, we know from the accounts. Then another lady was there. Her name's Joanna. And if you look back in Luke 8, this is amazing. And uh, uh, just such a beautiful thing for your heart. Joanna's husband was the financial steward, which means she was rich and privileged, to King Herod, who hated Jesus, folks. Joanna forsakes it all to be a follower of Christ and is even there witnessing the empty tomb and telling the apostles. Isn't that incredible? There's no class or distinction for us who are in Christ. We're all needy sinners, humble abiders. We have the life of Christ in us, and that makes us equal in Christ. Oh, I thought that was pretty good, but 
And the reason I think it's pretty good is not because of me, but because of what you're being fed. I don't care what news outlet you li- uh, listen to. What's the answer to this riot and that riot and this unrest? Well, folks, right here in this little church, in this little sliver of Pittsburgh, we know the answer. <laughs> it's Jesus. It brought all these people together. And then Mary also, the mother of James. Remember, several James of the Bible. There are a couple James who are apostles. James, the brother of John, and James the less. This is probably the mom of James the less. And the other women with who were with them told these things to the apostles. And <laughs> listen to this. What thick-headed dudes. And they, back there, seemed to them, what they were telling was like idle tales. Come on, let's get on with the day. What are you telling us about? And they didn't believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And if you read the other Gospels, you know that John went with him, remember? So Peter and John go to the tomb and stoop down, and he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And if you read that phrase in the Greek in John, you know that it's not, it's as if somebody just came out of the clothes and they sort of stayed intact. And he's lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. There are a couple other things. You can read it on your own. In this chapter here is the famous road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to these nondescript disciples, which is beautiful, isn't it? In the church, you don't just have to be part of the inner crowd. (laughs) The Lord's for everybody. (laughs) The common man, we do find out one of them. I think it's, I I probably say it wrong, but Cleopas in verse 18. And Jesus then is walking with them. You, You remember this. What kind of conversation are you guys having as you walk around, Jesus says to them, as he's kind of on the road to this village outside of Jerusalem, as they're there. These two men are discussing the events of what have happened, and Jesus is kind of there listening and following. And they're like, didn't you hear about what happened this weekend in Jerusalem? And he goes, what things? And so, they tell him the, the things uh, that, that happened, a prophet, mighty indeed, uh, was there before God and all the people in the religious establishment, crucified him. And we were hoping, verse 21, that he was going to redeem Israel. That was what we thought the Messiah was going to do. But this is the third day, and yes, certain women came and told us that the tomb was empty. Amazing. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it. He just recounts the story. Look in verse 25. Then he says to them, Jesus does, O foolish ones and slow of heart. You know, Jesus said that, but it didn't hurt their feelings, which is a sermon for another day. But he wasn't being mean. He was being compassionate here. The prophets had spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, can you imagine this? Jesus doing the ultimate Bible study. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounds to them and all the scriptures the things concerning him. Think about it. Everything. He goes through Genesis 
where the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised. In Genesis 22, when Abraham and Isaac, can you imagine that? Wrestling with Jacob, lion of the tribe of Judah, all the things from the Old Testament, and he goes, the Passover lamb and the sacrifices, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet that's greater than Moses, the ultimate kinsman redeemer in Ruth. Can you imagine? The son of David and all that, and the suffering savior of Psalm 22, and the shepherd of Psalm 23, and Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And he goes through all these things, right? To show that this one was the Messiah. That, listen, Jesus wasn't coming the first time, listen folks, not as a conquering hero like they thought, but as a suffering servant. (laughs) And then they come to the village, and you know this, and he wants to go on, and they say, no, they beg him. They say, come on, stay with us. And they broke, he broke bread, Jesus did, took bread, blessed it, broke it, Verse 30, gave it to them, and their eyes are opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, listen to this, wow, now we get a glimpse of the Bible study. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? Ooh, and while he opened the scripture, so they rose up and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11, and listen, they went back. They were going to amaze. They were like, this is so amazing. Let's head back about seven or eight mile walk. You ever walk seven or eight miles or 16 miles in one day? That's tough. And they go back, or a couple days, and here they go, and they go back. And the Lord, they say to the, the group in Jerusalem, is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Look, wait, 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 time out. What else do you need in court? You need good testimony, truthful testimony, and here it comes, and it comes rapidly in the Bible. Here we see that he appeared to Simon or Peter, and they told about the things that happened on the road. Now Jesus appears to his disciples in verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you, but they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had been a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 39, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still didn't believe for joy, listen, but while they still did not believe for joy, I'm just going to stop there for a minute and just tell you that emotion doesn't equal great faith. Are you catching that? Because you see, folks, today is emotional. It's great. You're with your friends. You're with the people. You're praising the Lord. They led us into amazing worship. But see, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to go on to tomorrow, into the mundane things of life. And Christ is no greater today than he is tomorrow morning. You're going to have to, you know, do the things that you don't like to do maybe tomorrow. And it might be boring, and you have less emotion. But don't let it stop you from believing. That's what that verse says to me. They didn't believe for joy. They were so happy and marveled. But he said, have you any food here? That, that's important. Man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm still in my body. This is telling you a great doctrine of the Christian church. Is Jesus 
died. He really died. Look, and he really rose again. It wasn't some sort of spirity Casper the ghost type of thing. It was Jesus with a transformed, resurrected body. And you go, well, okay, I mean, great. <laughs> yeah, but somebody mentioned it earlier here today. He's the first fruits. And where there's first fruits, there must be more fruit coming. And you're that fruit. The Christian religion, it's not a religion, but you know what I'm saying, is one of resurrection, folks. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. You're like, okay, whatever. Really? Have somebody die. <laughs> because in Christ, we will see that person again. And that's a hope that's nowhere else found in the world. It's only found here in Jesus. The scripture opened in verse 44. He said, I speak to you, these words, or the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. You see, he brings it back to the word of God. Isn't that interesting? He brings his whole death and resurrection right back to the word. Yes, see me and touch me, but also examine the scriptures. You can trust them. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend him. Then he said, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And here it comes, folks. Here comes our mission. As the Christian church, our mission never changes. I don't care if there's COVID or lockdown or liberty or whatever. If you get put in a prison, that same. If you get sent to Africa or to Luxembourg or to wherever, your mission will always be the same. Isn't it good to know what your purpose in life is. Here it is. It's that repentance and remissions of sin should be pre preached in his name to all nations, but beginning at home, at Jerusalem, and your witnesses of these things. Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And then 40 days later, he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands, blessed them, and while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now listen, I only hit on a couple of the appearances, or, or the writer here only hit on a couple of the appearances. Here's the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. You ready? To Mary Magdalene, you saw that. You can look in Mark 16, though, 9 and 10. To the other women... We read about it, but it's also in Matthew 28. That's in the early morning of the first day of the week. Then to the disciples on the way to Emmaus, read about that. We saw Peter. He appeared to Peter, we're told. Don't know much about it, but isn't that interesting? He appeared to Peter. Remember, Peter's the one that felt like he totally disappointed the Lord. God, Jesus made it a point to appear to him. To the 11, we just read about it. On the same night... On that time, if you read all the gospel accounts, Thomas is absent. So guess what they do a week later in John 20? They meet again with Thomas present. Then in John 21, he meets with seven of them at the Sea of Galilee. You can read about that. And again, he appears to the 11 and 500. 500, folks. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. 
500 people. Now listen, I'm a lawyer, and I'm not a great lawyer, but I know one thing. After about the third witness, yeah, I saw Jesus up in Galilee. You do swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but truth. Yep, okay. I saw Jesus up in Galilee. Okay, come on up. You, you, you swear to tell the whole truth? Yeah, I swear. Uh, what did you see? I saw Jesus up in Galilee. Third one. Uh, I saw, uh, Lord, I got, or, or Judge, I have uh, 490 other, other witnesses out there. Uh, I want to put them on the stand. He's like, enough. We get the point. This is overkill. And I don't want you to miss this. Galilee is 70 miles from Jerusalem, folks. You got to know your geography. 60 to 70 miles. That's up there, up on the map. Oh, but I've been taking you through all of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he appeared to James, his brother. Then... In Mark 16, Luke 24, I just read it to you. In Acts 1-3, his final appearance and his ascension. And if you want to say there's an 11th appearance, because there is, remember, he appeared to the murderous Saul as Saul walked to Damascus. And you can find that in Acts chapter 9. <laughs> he gave a plethora <laughs> of... of witnesses the opportunity to see him really you can go read these accounts and he actually went and he he appeared to his brother James I would just tell you what was the big difference here <laughs> obviously they saw him and they remembered the word of God because the Bible tells us for us we probably aren't going to see Jesus until he comes for us physically see him but we have his word. And the Bible tells us that the word of God, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. We can trust what we're reading. Oh, here's another thing we should probably kick in. You know this, right? That the people we're talking about here, all these apostles, the ones who deserted him at the cross. They fled from him. What a sad thing. There's only one of them that's recorded has a recorded death, and that's James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12. History or church history or church tradition tells us that the rest of them died a martyr's death. Like James, for instance, the one who grew up with him, who didn't believe in him, who thought he was out of his mind, who saw him and remembered the words and became the leader of the church, they took him up to the top of the temple and knocked him off about 100 feet. And the awful thing is, tradition tells us, he didn't die. So guess what they brought? A sledgehammer. And they killed him. Wouldn't call it a sledgehammer, but same thing. And why am I telling you that? As all of these uh, men died for Jesus, except for John, we don't know that. Why am I telling you that? Because I got to tell you, folks, if I didn't really see Jesus, and they got me up to the top of the temple, and they just said, hey, renounce what you said, and you can live, I would have said, hmm, 
I've been lying this whole time. I didn't see it. I didn't see him. They went from wimpy to brave. So brave that they would die for their faith. And I'm telling you, folks, nobody's dying for a lie, let alone 10 people. They're not dying for a lie. They saw him. They knew the words, and it, the words of God, and it matched up perfectly. So what does this mean here? Well, here's what it means. What does the resurrection mean for the Christian? What does it mean for the Christian? Well, if you look in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, what does, it, what does the resurrection mean for you in 2021 in a pandemic in southwestern Pennsylvania? Well, it means the same thing that it's always meant. It means that if you're confused and hurting and anxious <laughs> and you don't know the direction of your life or you don't know the direction of society, God brings total clarity through the cross. He tells us exactly who he is and who we are through the cross. Look in Romans 1, 4, or just listen along as I turn there. Romans Chapter 1, verse 4. What does the resurrection mean for us? In Romans 1, verse 4, it says this, if I can get there. It says, and declared, uh, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. According to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection means God or Jesus is who he says he was. See, a lot of people think Jesus was lying. <laughs> he couldn't have been lying if he rose again. He wasn't lying if he rose again. Some people believe he was just out of his mind. His own brothers said that. He wasn't that if he rose again. He was exactly who he says he was. He was the Son of God, or he is the Son of God. Fully God, fully man. And he comes or he's been raised by the power of God. Isn't that fascinating? In the Psalms, it tells us that power belongs to God. He is raised by the power of God, and you say, oh, okay, well, that's great, I, I know that. And then until you stumble across Romans 8, verse 11, and then you go, oh my. What do you mean? Well, in Romans 8, verse 11, it says this, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and time out before I read the rest of it, he will dwell in you if you surrender your life to Christ. That's what the previous part of the chapter is telling you. <laughs> but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know that Jeremy Camp song that you love to sing? Uh, I'm going blank here. Can't think of the tune. But anyway, he sings the songs about this verse. <laughs> I was going to sing it, but I spared you, or the Lord spared you. <laughs> the same power, there you go, that <laughs> raised Jesus from the dead, right? That's this verse. And the reality is, God's power, listen, to the Christian now who surrenders and counts on and puts their faith and trust in Christ so that the condemning clouds of God's wrath and judgment go away. 
for people who do that, you've been raised from death to life. So that even if you perish here physically, you'll never die. And you will be given a glorified, resurrected body. You're not going to float around with a halo and, you know, da-da-da-da, like some ghosty thing. You're really going to be intact with a glorified, resurrected body. You see how important this is? Everything Christ claimed to be comes true. He actually said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The great I am, the Messiah, the divine Son of God. That's who he is. This also is sort of like, you know, when you buy something, and you're always like, hey, man, I need a receipt. I need the proof that it was purchased. That's what the resurrection is to the cross. It's the receipt, so to speak, that indicates the sacrifice was accepted by God. Hebrews 10.12, But this man, after he'd offered, offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. His work was over. God accepted it. There's so many other things that we could talk about. You now can walk in newness of life because of what we just talked about. The scriptures tell us that in Romans 6 and Colossians 2. And here's one that I find very interesting that the resurrection did for us. And you're going to look at me with wondering eyes. It's found in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. It says this, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, if you don't know that you're going to heaven, if you don't know that you have eternal life, listen to this in Acts 17, 30. He commands all men everywhere to repent. What does repent mean? Just change your mind about your life. Your life is ruled by God. You've been created by God. Recognize you're a sinner and walk towards God. Quit walking the other way. He commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which, listen, listen, can you believe I'm reading this? On which he will judge the world in righteousness. Repent, this writer is telling us in Acts, because you and I will be judged. And he's going to do it righteously by the man whom he has ordained, Christ. He has given assurance of this to all. Here it comes. How do we know that Christ is going to be the one who judges? Because he was raised from the dead. You see, my goodness, the guy's up there preaching brimstone and fire. Actually, I'm not, although I kind of (laughs) am. All of us in this room are going to be judged. If you want to count on your own way to get to God, you'll be judged according to your good deeds. You can look at the great white throne judgment at the back of the Bible And you don't want to be there. And the reason you don't want to be there is the Bible tells us we've all gone our own way. We've gone astray. Not one of us is righteous. No, not one. God says, okay, but I'll I'll still judge you righteously. Come. You're going to come to the great white throne judgment. I'll judge you righteously. If you failed, though, just that much, 
you'll be in eternal damnation. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says for Christians, we're not judged that way. We have the righteousness of Christ. We're judged according to what God gave us. That's called the Bema Seat Judgment. You can look it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But here's something else I want to point out to you that I maintain. If God is judge, life has meaning. You see, we try to shirk away from the doctrine of judgment. When in reality, we ought to be like, yes, there's point, there's a point, there's a reason to life. And what is it for those who are in Christ? You're going to be judged according to what God has given you. Are you have you been a good steward? And you say, oh, wow, that's amazing. Or at least I say that. And maybe some of you are learning this because all the things we do count and matter. Not in a condemning way. We're working ourselves to, to heaven. No, we've been saved by the blood of Christ. We get to do everything that the Lord puts on our plate. Isn't that beautiful? It gives purpose to life that God has judged and it's made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if you search and you look, the, resurrect, the death of Jesus Christ, we talked about it on Friday, obtained certain things for you. Justification, pardon for sin, and we went through them all. And now the resurrection does more. It piles on to all the blessings that you have. You know that he's the son of God. You're Sacrifice or the sacrifice for sin has been accepted. You have the receipt now. You can walk in newness of life and you know that life has meaning because God is the judge. And before we leave, I couldn't let you go without reading to you what Beck started to read to you uh, earlier this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there with me if you like. 1 Corinthians 15, the risen Christ and faith's reality. Look in verse 20. As we study all the things that has been accomplished at the cross, and we could never study them in this amount of time, if Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, for since by man came death, by man also came resurrection of the dead. Wow. You could even go back a little bit in verse 14 and 15 if Christ is not risen. What I'm doing up here is sheer stupidity. It's folly. And what you're doing right now is the same. We'd be really stupid to be here if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul tells us. And not only that, we'd be found false witnesses of God, verse 15, because we testified of God that he raised up Christ when he didn't raise him up. Can you, you ever thought of that? We'd be false witnesses. If you look in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. In other words, 
Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only do we know that life matters, it also tells us that we matter, and we have the hope of eternal life. Come on, man. When you sing that song, when, here it goes, another song. I hope I can remember it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Doesn't that do something to you? It's like mind blown. So here's what I'm saying. As we wrap this up, there's no hope without Jesus, folks. Ecclesiastes tells us that. We are Hearts are anxious and settled, and we run to every other cistern, you know, like drug, sex, rock and roll, and none of them satisfies, or hobbies, or things, and nothing satisfies. Nothing does except Jesus, who's the bread of life. With him we'll never, never, never thirst. So I close here. I ask, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, today's the day to do that. If you're running from God, today's the day that you come back. If Jesus rose again, just like Paul on his road to Damascus, he asks each of us, who am I, the Lord is saying, to you personally? And you must answer the question yourself. Never forget, resurrection is not an it or a the. The resurrection is a him, H-I-M. Because Jesus said in John 11, chapter 25, I am the resurrection and the life. What do you give yourself to? You don't give yourself to a paradigm or a system of thinking or a this or a that. You give your life in obedience to Jesus. And it's all because of the resurrection. Let's pray. You guys want to come on up and we're going to sing out as we head on out of here? Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your eternal word and the things that you've accomplished and what you've told us. Lord, we've just scratched the surface of what you've accomplished, and we'll be exploring that in eternity for always. So help us, Lord. Help us to know these things, and then help us to live these things by your Spirit, and help us to remember we're not giving ourselves over to a paradigm or a system of thinking, but we're giving our lives over to you, the one who is the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.